You're listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church, a relevant biblical community. For more information, visit houstonsfirst.org. Well, welcome to Sienna and Cyprus and downtown and the Loop and Digital Family as well. We've been in a series called Good Questions, and I have received hundreds of questions from all different campuses, so this has been a lot of fun. So we're going to answer a few questions, and we're going to jump into our message in just a little bit. But before we get there, I just want to say, and let's just applaud the Lord. I'm so proud of the video we saw just a, a bit ago at all campuses, of uh, just the way that our church is helping other churches. Aren't you glad it's not all about us? Let's just give a cheer for that. We want to be a part of helping all churches, Siena and Cypress, downtown, The Loop, all coming together. Uh, we're a big church, but because we're a big church, we can make a big difference is what can happen, and that's what we want to be able to do. So we have submitted some good questions, so let me jump in with us. We've got five of them today I'm going to try to hit. The first one is this, when should you stop praying for something? When should you stop praying for something? And they uh, gave a little reference of Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 11, talking about just praying for persist, uh, persistently with that. And here's what I would say, a couple things. Number one, when you realize your motives are wrong and God's been working on you, that's the first thing. When you realize you've been praying, sincerely praying, but you realize, you know what, that's not the right motives and, and God needs to do a work in my heart. So for that, if that's you, surrender is the key word where you just say, Lord, whatever your will is, not my will. Number two, I'd say your desires have changed or you realize it's not God's will. That in your heart, your heart has just said, you know what, that's not really the direction uh, I think I'm supposed to go. That's not really what I need, not really what I want. Or I realize that's not God's will, um, and so I'm going to stop praying for something at that point. But lastly, if it's in accordance to God's will, and in your heart, you keep praying, okay? If it's in accordance to God's will and it's in your heart, you keep praying and asking God to do something great, somebody's salvation, somebody to come back to the Lord, somebody that's going through a difficult time, his gospel to go forward, justice on planet earth, all those things we know are in accordance to God's will, then we're going to keep praying for those things and keep asking the Lord. And you may pray for decades. I'm going to share with you at the end of the message, a prayer that had been prayed for over 20 years that God answered in a salvation uh, of a gentleman. So that's amazing. Uh, number two, how do I listen to God? How do I listen to God? I'll give you four things. His word, which is his Bible. So whenever we're speaking or whenever we're reading God's word, we're listening to God right then. He is speaking to us. Number two, his spirit. When we're praying, the Holy Spirit's gonna minister to us and speak to us. So we wanna be people of the word and we wanna be people of prayer so that we can hear the voice of the Lord. Number three, his people. Wise counsel, the church, people being able to speak into your lives. Hopefully the Lord will use me in a few moments, even right now, to speak into your life. And that'll be a powerful thing uh, that'll touch your heart. And then the last one is circumstances. God uses circumstances. Now, we want to get it in that order, though. I gave it to you in the order you want to get it, right? His Bible, His Spirit, His people, in circumstances. What do we typically do? circumstances. Then we call a friend and say, what do you think? And then we say, dear Lord, please help me. And then we go, where's that verse about all things working for the good of those who love Christ, right? So we want to get it in the right order and be able to walk through those things in that way and understand that priority. Okay, a little bit of fun one here. Um, the chosen TV show, yay or nay? That was a question. 
The Chosen TV show, yay or nay? Yay, for sure, yay. I think it's great. I haven't seen every single one of them, but I've seen a bunch of them, and it's, a, it's an amazing thing. So absolute yay for The Chosen TV show. Um, then a jumping back into a little bit of a deeper one, four out of five. Why are non-believers happier than me? <laughs> kind of funny, isn't it? We've all felt that a little bit. Why are non-believers happier than me? Well, let me first of all say comparison is a dangerous thing, right? We're either going to get prideful when we compare or we're going to get discouraged when we compare. But rarely do we become more godly when we compare. So be careful about comparison, first of all. Secondly, I'd say you don't know their whole story and you don't know their deepest thoughts. We judge a book by its cover many times, and we want to change lives with people. But if you're going to change lives with people, you got to take all the good and all the bad. And when you really investigate that, you'll probably find, you know what, I'm just fine with my life. So don't just judge by a cover. You don't know their deepest thoughts. It says in Proverbs 14, verse 13, even in laughter, the heart may ache. So you don't know their deepest thoughts and you don't know what they're really going through um, in their life. Psalm 73 is a great psalm. If you want to write that one down, give you a few verses out of it on this. Psalm 73, verse three, it says, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. Their imagination and their hearts run wild. A few verses down. Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. Then it goes to verse 16. When I tried to understand this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. Not that we're asking for that. It's just what can happen. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come into the end and are swept away by terrors. Verse 21 drops down. When I became embittered in my innermost being was wounded. So the comparison wounded. And then last verses. Those far from you will certainly perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... God's presence is my good, and the Lord God is my refuge, so I, tell, I can tell all that you do. So he starts out with comparison, saying, why are the wicked prospering? He ends with saying, Lord, you're mine, and I trust in you. He ends with praise is what he ends with. So here's what I'd say to you. Count your blessings and dig deeper in the Lord. Count your blessings and dig deeper in the Lord. Have a gratitude journal. My wife does this. Write down things you're grateful for, and you can write them down by the thousands over a few years to be able to have a gratitude journal. Take a bigger view. Take a bigger view of what's going on. Statistically, I did a little research. That is not a true statement. Statistically, believers in Christ are 11% happier than non-believers in Christ, okay? So just statistically, it's working out for us well, and we have the joy of the Lord even when our circumstances are not what we want them to be. Last question. Here we have last question, and the most important to me. Here it is. Did Kelly make the football food? <laughs> if you were here last week, you know that I, I just prayed a prayer in front of thousands of people that my wife would, would just come strong with the football playoff food, and I just want to show you the picture of what I got when I got home. Here's what it was. Look at that. Pretty good. All right, let's cheer for Kelly. There you go. We had cookies, and she was like, I'm coming strong. I'm not letting uh, this fall. Now that you've done this to me publicly, I'm going to make this happen. 
So she came strong and it was a good football day and it's gonna be a good Sunday for us today. Good questions. We got one more week. I'm gonna answer some more of those next week, but let's jump into some questions that Paul has in the book of Romans and let's pray together as we go there. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. So many questions and we just pray, thanking you, God, that you are the God of all the answers, Lord. We may not know the answer until we get to heaven and see you face to face, but Lord, we can trust you that you are a God that answers our questions. You're not intimidated by us. You're not stumped by our questions. You are a God that knows the answer. And so we can turn to you, Father. I think of Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed to us belong to us and our children forever. So there are secret things, Lord, that we do not know and we will not know but there are other things that belong to us and our children forever. So we thank you for that, Lord. We trust you with that. And we pray as we look into these questions in Romans that you, Lord, would speak to our hearts and let us hear from you in a clear way. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to Romans chapter 11 is where we're gonna be, Romans 11. And we're gonna jump into some really difficult places of scripture, okay? So I want you to hang with me on this as we jump through these things of some questions Paul has. We've been looking at Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. They fit together in a package talking about Israel is what it's primarily talking about. And so we're gonna look at these questions that Paul has and here's what we're gonna do, just like we did last week. I'm gonna put down two rails for our train. One rail is gonna be biblical history that we're gonna look at Jews and Gentiles and prophecy and God's plan for Israel and all these things. And then the other rail I'm gonna put down as well is going to be some personal application that we can take for today. Because we're not just reading a history book, we're reading the Bible which uses history to be able to speak to our heart so that we can walk in a life change kind of way. So we're gonna put down a rail of some good old Bible history and looking at it all, and we're gonna put down a rail of some good old personal application and be able to understand that in this really difficult passage of scripture. Um, I bet you have not heard this section preached before. And so we're gonna jump into it. And when we talk about the Jewish people, we're not talking about the nation of Israel we think about right now, starting in 1948. We're talking about the people of Israel, the Jewish people, okay? That's what we're talking about. Now, the first question that we get to is this, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? That's a great question because sometimes we feel alone as well, don't we? We feel like, well, where are you, Lord? Are you here? Are you around us? Someone in Cyprus may be saying, where are you, God? Someone in Siena or downtown, where are you, Lord? Now, God has not rejected his people. Here's the answer. No, there is a remnant. There's a remnant. You know what a remnant is? It's a small group. You'll use it in this passage. You'll say it's a little piece of the lump. It's a, a little bit of the olive tree. He'll use these illustrations through here. So let's ask the question and see if you can see how creative I am on where I get my questions. Let's look at verse one. You ready? I asked then, has God rejected his people? See how creative I am? Has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. Here's his answer. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He's basically saying this, look, you don't get any more Jewish than me. 
I'm Paul and I'm of a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm an Israelite. He would to tell you also further in Philippians 3, uh, verse four through six, he'd say, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a, regarding the law, a Pharisee. And so Paul is saying, I am as Jewish as you get. I like to say it like this in my own life. I'm a native Houstonian. I was born in Herman Hospital in the medical center. You don't get any more Houston than me, right? Born in the medical center, lived here my whole life, except for years I went to college and such, but native Houstonian. So I am Houston of Houston. Many of you are as well. He's saying I'm Jew of Jew. Here we go. Verse two, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture is saying about the passage in the passage about Elijah? He's talking to the Jewish folks. He's going to use Elijah. How he pleads with God against Israel. This is 1 Kings 19. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left. And they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at this present time a remnant, see how creative I am? A remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Now, let's take a pause right there and we'll jump into verse seven. Paul uses himself and he says, okay, you think that God's rejected the Jewish people just because the gospel is going out to the Gentiles because they rejected Christ. They, he has not rejected the Jewish people. I am living proof. I am a Jew that has come to Christ is what Paul is saying. And not only that, when Elijah thought he was the only one, this was after he went to battle against the prophets of Baal. And so he's got this amazing Mount Carmel experience. And then he gets depressed because Jezebel's running after him and he runs off. He gets down and he says, you're not the only one, Elijah. There's 7,000 more. So here's our point. The Jewish people have not been rejected. Paul is actually a Jew that has come to Christ. There's a remnant, there's a small group, there's people that come to Christ. Your Jewish friend could come to Christ and ask Jesus to be their savior. It can happen. And so letting that be a, a part of the remnant proving that he's not giving up on his people. Not only that, he goes back to Elijah, one of the main prophets of the Old Testament. And Elijah thought, I'm the only one. And God says, no, you're not. I got 7,000. Now let me take Elijah for just a second. When you go through a difficult, dark time, you will feel like you're the only one. You'll feel like that. I'll feel like that. So it's important to get a, a part of, of groups, if you go through a time of grief, to get a part of a grief share group and say, you know what, I'm not the only one. We do a great ministry here called Sisters in Support for, for women that have, have lost children of really all ages so they can know that they're not the only one because we, we get in our room and we close the shutters and we, we turn off the lights and we get down in the dumps and we feel like I'm the only one. And God's saying, no, you're not the only ones. There's your personal application. You're not the only one. God is with you. God is with you. So in today's world, even, we can feel like the only one. Have you ever turned on the, the TV and felt like, is there a Christian left in the world? Right? And there is. And that's why we come to church and we see thousands of people gather. We see churches all over the city and all over the state and all over the nation and all over the world. And we go, wow, this is great. I'm not the only one. So Paul is saying there's a remnant. God has not rejected his people. He's got folks and he's got you and he's got me. And so let's trust in him and let's stay in the body of Christ. Let's stay together and let God do his work. 
Now, the second thing that he's going to say is a difficult passage of Scripture. So I'm going to explain it to you. It's a difficult passage. Look in verse 7. Here we go. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did. The rest were hardened as it was written. So Israel's looking for in their self-righteousness to try to gain God. God gave them a spirit of stupor. That means deep sleep. Eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table be a snare and a trap, a pitfall, a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be continually bent. Now that's a difficult place for us because we're like, whoa, we don't like it when God's talking about hardening people. So let's ask this question. Here's the question. Does God harden someone or does God cooperate with their hardening? Okay. I want to point you back to the illustration in Romans chapter 9. Paul gave us with Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times before we see that God hardened his heart. Okay. And at the end of Pharaoh's time, he hardened his heart nine times and God hardened his heart nine times. But it all began with Pharaoh hardening his heart. You will never see in the scriptures God turning away a repentant, sincere sinner coming for grace. You'll never see it, okay? Here's the blank, and this is a big blank for us to understand. The Jewish folks have rejected Christ He's the Jewish Messiah all the way through the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament's about. They've rejected Christ. You know, there's a difference in being a Christian and being Jewish, right? And the difference is believing in Jesus the Messiah. Now, we love our Jewish friends, and we'll see here we should be humble. But to be able to see that there's a difference, that Christians receive Jesus as Savior. So here's what it says, or here's how to put it. God cooperates with the hardening of a heart. God cooperates with the hardening of a heart. You get the heart toward God you want. You get the heart toward God you want. Spurgeon put it like this, the same sunlight hardens the clay and melts the wax. Another person put it like this, boiling water can soften a potato and harden an egg. Which will we allow the trials of this life to be? And here he's saying, that God gave them a spirit of super, that there was a hardening of heart, but he never hardens a sincere seeker. Do you remember Matthew 7, verse 7? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. Now, as a sweet, rather hug you than hit you, believer in Christ, it's just hard for me when I get to these verses. I'm like, oh no, oh no, really mean God. Oh no, what do I do with this? So we gotta do, we gotta dig deeper and realize that God is cooperating with the hardness of the heart of the Jewish folks so that, we'll see in a minute, the gospel can go forward to the ends of the earth through the Gentiles, okay? That's a big biblical part of our Bibles, okay? So Pharaoh is a great example he gives us in Matthew, in uh, Romans chapter nine. And in Romans chapter nine, we see that he hardened his heart first. And so the hardening of the heart begins with the person. And then God cooperates with the hardening of that heart to give you the heart that you want before God. Now, if you've had a hardened heart, God has put you under my voice in this moment with this scripture for this reason. You repent 
and say, God, my heart is hard before you and I want you to melt it like wax, not harden it like clay, God. I need you to soften my heart. If you've got a person in your life with a hard heart, you pray for the softening of their heart and ask God to do it because he can turn it around. That's what he did with Paul. That was our first example. Do you remember? Paul was Saul who actually went on a mission to kill Christians. Really, really hard heart. And God got a hold of him, okay? So our first question is, God rejected his people. No, it's, he has not. Now look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this. I asked then, have they stumbled so far as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, their transgressions, by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Here's our next question. Are our failures final? Are our failures final? That's what Paul asked. I asked then, have they stumbled so far as to fall? Absolutely not, absolutely not. So what's the answer? Are our failures final? No, they're not. No, a God of grace still has a plan. A God of grace still has a plan. Our God of grace, not a God, our God of grace has a plan. So when you fail and you stumble and you will and I will, and when you feel like a bad parent, when you feel like a bad spouse, when you feel like a bad employee or employer, when you feel like a bad Christian, when you feel like all those things, your failures aren't final. My failures aren't final either. God is a God of grace. Now, here's a little thing I'll give you. If you feel like a bad parent, it probably means that you're a good parent. Because bad parents don't feel like they're bad parents. They're just bad parents, right? But when you go like, I did... <sighs> That means you're striving, you're trying, and you can insert spouse, you can insert employee, employer, whatever. If it bothers you when you do things wrong, that's a great sign, okay? That's a good, good sign. You should have a sensitive heart before God to say, ah, I didn't want to, why did I do that? That's awesome, stay there. The problem is when you say, I don't care if I did that, right? That's a hardened heart, isn't it? So he says, are our failures final? No, the God of grace still has a plan. God's plan and promises weren't defeated by Israel's stumbling or their lack of faith, okay? And now here's the amazing thought we get to in verse 12. Verse 12 is where it says, now if their transgressions bring riches to the world, okay? And then it says at the end of verse 11, on contrary, their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Here's what's happened. Let me give you your Bible in about 15 seconds. God created man and woman, Adam and Eve. They sinned. He covered their sin with shedding of blood so we could see a, a precursor of Jesus to come. Then we had a bunch of kids, a bunch of problems. We had an ark. We had a tower, tower of Babel. We had all these things. And then a guy named Abraham comes along and God chooses him. And he says, Abraham, you're, you and Sarah are going to have a son. It's going to be Isaac. And this is going to be the line. That's the Jewish line. And we have a whole lot of prophets because we have a whole lot of disobedience, a whole lot of problems. We're going to have some high points, some low points. And then he's going to say, through this line, I'm going to bring a Messiah so you don't have to keep the law. You can have the law kept when the perfect Savior dies for you. And you can have a relationship with God. So the Jewish line comes to Jesus. And Jesus dies on a cross in Jerusalem as a Jewish man, son of God. So then we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. So when you start talking about Messiah with your Jewish friends, they know what you're talking about. 
You start talking about blood sacrifice, they know what you're talking about. You talk about holy of holies, they know what you're talking about. You start talking about, about prophets and prophecy, they know what you're talking about. Because Christianity is a Jewish continuation, really, is what it is. So then the Jewish folks here in the Old Testament or in the, the biblical days, they rejected Christ as Savior. And then it went in the book of Acts to the Gentiles. And I showed you last week that they couldn't believe that it was going to go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And last week, I had you raise your hand if you're not Jewish, and most of our church raised their hand. So it worked. It went to the Gentiles. So what it's saying here is God's plan did not fail. He used it, and now he sends it out to the Gentiles, and he's still got a remnant of Israel, and he's going to come back, we'll see in a bit at the end, to be able to, to give Israel an opportunity again. But here's all the Gentiles going out. This is a fulfillment of something. I want you to look at um, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. You don't have to even turn there. I'll put it up there for you on the screen. And the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham I just mentioned, go forth from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation. That's Israel, great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now look at verse 3. This is where we get I will bless those who bless you and curse anyone who treats you with, a con with contempt and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. What is that? That's the Gentiles, non-Jewish people having an opportunity for salvation, okay? That's baked in in Genesis. And now we're seeing Paul talk about it here. All the people of the earth will be blessed by you. God can rescue us in our disobedience. He can even use it for good. We never stumble beyond God's reach. We're never out of his grace. He could use the Gentiles' faith then to lure the Israelites back and to show how great God is. Now, he uses a couple examples. We won't read it all. You can read it through here. He says, there's an olive tree and I wanna graft in these branches, these new branches of Gentiles. It's an olive tree. It's a perfect illustration. If you've ever been to Italy, there's a lot of olive oil in Italy. We went to Italy and we had olive oil at every meal. It was awesome. It was great. Uh, the tour guide kept saying, would you like to do a wine tasting? Would you like to do a wine tasting? We said, how about an olive oil tasting? We did an olive oil tasting, okay? And we tasted all these different little olive oils. You, you take a little bit in your mouth and you go, that's how you taste it. Taste it all the same to this Texan. And just so you know, just greasy. Give me a piece of bread. That's all I want, right? So we tasted it. It was great. Olives are produced in Spain, in Greece, in Italy. So he's speaking to the Romans, don't forget, and he's talking about an olive tree being grafted back in. So it makes sense to them. Then in this, he's saying, I have brought you into the line and you as a Gentile are gonna be blessed by this Jewish religion that has sent a Jewish Messiah named Jesus. Now let me give you, I'm gonna give you two illustrations today of people in our church, okay? What's happening here in this passage is the Jews have said, no, we don't want Jesus. We've rejected the Messiah. And then God has said, okay, I'm gonna fulfill the rest of Genesis chapter 12, verse three, and we're gonna bring all the nations in, and it's gonna go out to all, mainly most of us. Most of us are not of Jewish descent. And our people, our descendants worship false gods and idols, and God in his grace brought us in. 
How amazing that. Let me give you this illustration from our church. This is our very church, okay? I'm not getting this like Googling good illustration to come up with for Romans chapter 11, all right? This is an illustration from our church. Have you ever heard of the Assyrians? The Assyrians in the Bible are bad folks, okay? Here's what a couple commentators say. The ancient empire was considered the terror, the symbol of terror and tyranny in the Near East for more than three centuries. It was the seat of worship for the sun god. It was the most dominant Near Eastern empire until the destruction in the seventh century. It's located, they were located in modern day Northern Iraq. Assyria was the imperial power that destroyed the Northern kingdom of Israel. Your book, I read it this week in Nahum in your Bible is about the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah's about the revival of Nineveh. Then a hundred years later, Nineveh is destroyed in uh, the book of Nahum. We have in our church an amazing story of an Assyrian coming to Christ. A enemy of God for centuries against the Jewish people. And that's where his line comes from. Here's what happened. A man named Thomas was on his way through to India. You ever remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? Well, Thomas came through this area of northern Iraq. Nineveh is what's called Mosul, Mosul, where we've heard all the Iraqi war stuff, M-O-S-U-L, Mosul. That's Nineveh. And this gentleman, his family is from 45 miles north of Nineveh. Here's what he wrote in an email that I got this week. My heritage is Assyrian origin. My parents are Assyrian. They were both born in a village about 45 kilometers north of Mosul, Nineveh, which is in the northern part of modern Iraq. Our family tree that I know of, it goes back to nine to 10 generations born in this village. One thing that our village is known for is it's the village of the prophet of Nahum, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament there upon the Assyrian exile on Israel. Christianity came to northern Iraq when the apostle Thomas made his way to India in about 51 to 57 AD. Following all, all this stuff that's happened, he was one that went out. He left Jerusalem when the believers were scattered after the persecution. This man in our church says, I was born in Baghdad, Iraq. But when the people from the region ask who I am and where I'm from, get this. I am an Assyrian and a born-again Christian. That's what he says. I'm an Assyrian and a born-again Christian. That's how we are known. And the same goes through my, through my, for my three children and their children as well. Can I tell you that that is the dad of a staff member of our church, our production director, his name is Yoshi Haddad. Sound Iraqi enough for you? Yusef would be his real name. We call him Yoshi. Yoshi Haddad, and without Yoshi and his team at all campuses, you would not be hearing my voice right now. You would not be seeing this. No images would come up on the screens. Nothing would happen without our production director trickles his all the way back to being an Assyrian. His dad and his mom go to our Cyprus campus, shout out for Cyprus, and have served in our Stevens ministry that helps people going through difficult times for the last 13 years. Can I paint for you with that illustration a picture of an enemy of God being grafted into the olive tree that was intended to be Judaism blossoming? And here we stand today in our very church with an Assyrian. We didn't see it on his resume. We would have asked a few more questions, but an Assyrian. 
is getting my voice to you right now. Can we just say amen to the grace of God? There are people worship the sun God, not the son of God. That's the right way to do it. The sun God. And now they're serving in our church, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? Are, are, are the failures final? Absolutely not. God is a God of grace and he's using this to reach out even further. Now, let me hit it quick. Here we go. Verse, uh, verse three, uh, question three. So how should we respond to salvation? So you and I, Believers in Christ, either Jew or Gentile, how should we respond to salvation? Gratitude and humility, not boasting. Gratitude and humility, not boasting. Look at verse 17. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in, an Assyrian grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, don't boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. He is saying, oh, Mr. Gentile, you be grateful to that Jewish heritage that brought us the Messiah. So we're not anti-Jewish by any means in Christianity. We are honoring and grateful because we got grafted in. Most of us, if we're Gentile, grafted into something that was a Jewish deal. And we got to be a part of that. How incredible is that? We got moved up. We got put right in the right place. Gratitude for grace, humility, that we're a part of it. Trusting Jesus Christ is our savior. Wow. My family and I, we went over Christmas, we went to the Hobby Center and we went to see Mary Poppins. It's actually really good. We had a great time with it. It's so neat, um, good thing. And she's almost perfect in every way or perfectly perfect in every way, whatever the song is. But to be able to see the whole thing was wonderful. We get there, you know, we're used to more like going to the Astros than we are to the theater, you know? I mean, so we got there, we sat down, we got our seats. We thought we were in the right seats. We sat down and we sat there and we're ready to go for the show. And somebody comes up and says, um, excuse me, you're in our seats, which is like your worst fear, right? When you're in kind of a new place. Um, and they were sweet about it. And they said, we're in your seats, you're in our seats. So we looked at our tickets and said, oh, okay, uh, sure. And so we let them sit down. And then we said to the, to the hostess person, um, could you show us our seats? And they said, oh, well, you're not in this section. We were over, like if you're from the stage, we were over to the left in the corner, way over there behind a pole, you know, I mean, just about, not quite, but we're way over here. They said, no, you're, you're over here. And we ended up in the center section behind the orchestra area where there was a wall and there was about a two or three foot, about a two foot gap between us and the wall. And we were basically in first class is where we were at that point. And y'all know I'm a long legged, tall five, seven and a half. And we got right there and I was like, these are the greatest seats. This is incredible. And Kelly had gotten them for us for Christmas. She's like, well, I asked the guy to give us good seats. I didn't know he just said he'd give us good seats. And so we, and there we were. And I'm just telling you, Mr. Gentile, Mrs. Gentile, Miss Gentile, you and I got moved to the center of God's focus and his will for him to graft us in. And we don't boast, we bow and say, wow. You mean my people worship the sun God and now I'm in relationship with the son of God? Thank you, God. 
Thank you. Question four. This is a big one. Hang with me. Does God keep his promises? Does God keep his promises? It's a good question for us to ask of our own hearts, isn't it? Does God keep his promises to us? Because there's going to be times you go through in your life, you're going to wonder, God, are you keeping your promises? I got a little book in my office that says God's promises. It's a whole book of just verses about God's promises. Does he keep those promises? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Look at verse 25. Hang with me. Here we go. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Okay, so it's complicated. God's going to reveal things in his timing. Of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Remember, there's a remnant, but there's a partial hardening. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, this is Isaiah, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godliness, godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay. Does God keep his promises? Yes, he does. He's at work and he will finish what he started. First thing I want to tell you about is when it says the fullness of the Gentiles, what does that mean? In verse 26, the fullness of the Gentiles. Do you know Revelation? Do you remember when we went through Revelation? We talked about Revelation. When Revelation, it says this in chapter five, and they sang a new song and you were worthy to open the scroll because open its seals. And it says then you are, such a people of God were purchased from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign on earth. Do you remember Matthew chapter 28 where it said, go therefore make disciples of all nations. So what has God done? God has said, I want every nation around the throne and the fullness of Gentiles means until everyone, every tribe and tongue has a representative around their throne, Jesus isn't coming back. So every nation is going to be around the throne. That's the fullness of Gentiles. Now, next it gives an Old Testament prophecy for the Jewish people. It says that all of Israel will be saved. Now, this doesn't mean every Jew that's ever lived. This is still based on belief, personal faith and belief. What he's going to do, hang with me, this is good. Zechariah 12 is going to give us a prophecy of what's going to happen in the end times. Jesus is going to return. There's going to be a remnant of Jews that are going to respond to Christ and come to Christ. Okay? Here's Zechariah 12, verse 10. Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David. Who is that? That's the Jewish people. And the residents of Jerusalem. They will look at me whom they pierced. Who is that? Jesus pierced in his side, pierced in his hands, pierced on his brow, pierced on his feet. And they will look at me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. He's God's only begotten son. And weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, okay? So God is gonna wrap this whole thing up when we get to the end times and Jesus is wrapping it up. There's gonna be every nation, tribe, and tongue is gonna be around the throne, a believer from every place because God's that gracious to bring in the Assyrians as well. And he's even going to bring in Jewish folks that have placed their faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Now, does prophecy help us today? Or is it like, ah, let's just worry about today. Let me just give you an illustration if prophecy helps us. What if I, you could get in a time machine, you were to go back and you ended up on the deck of a ship and you're like, I am on a cruise ship. Wow. 
and it is something. People are in top hats and big dresses, and I got a cane, and I'm walking down to dinner, and on the way to dinner, you see one of the little, uh, little things they throw out to life-saving rings that are there, and you see on that life-saving ring, USS Titanic. Does that change anything for you? Is your goal in life at that moment, are you going to say, you know what? I'm going to be the shuffleboard champion of the USS Titanic. Absolutely not. And how many of us are trying to be this shuffleboard champion on planet Earth, not realizing that this whole thing is about God and Jesus? Trust him. Trust him. Last illustration I want to give you. God will keep his promises to Israel and to us. God is faithful when we are not. He has a plan even when we don't see it. His desire is for you and to me to trust him. And we stand by his grace through faith and we fall by unbelief. Let me give you a testimony from our very church. A lady in our church, Andrea Kim is her name. She is a completed Jew. She grew up Jewish and she has come to faith in Jesus Christ, teaches a life Bible study in our church, served in other ways as well. She is a Jew that has come to Christ. What an amazing thing. And she began to pray for her dad and ask the Lord, Lord, would you bring my father to Christ? She prayed for him for over 20 years. He had been denied jobs. He had been talked down to. He had been refused service because he was a Jewish man. There was a bitterness in his heart and a hardness in his heart. When she came to Christ, he said, you've been brainwashed. You've been brainwashed. She wrote his name on the floor of our church. Remember when we did that? We've done it in all our facilities and we're gonna do it again in more of them. Wrote his name on the floor to come to Jesus Christ as Savior. And been praying and praying and many of you have been praying. LBS folks, like Bible study folks, praying for him for 20 years. And she'd share her faith, share her faith, share her faith. And then finally COVID came and she came in. She got into the hospital after he had had a bad fall and was isolated. And she brought him a devotional guy that she had written about, about Christmas. She gave it to him, shared Christ with him one more time. And then it got to lockdown where she could only minister through a window to him. But the nurse inside was woken up by a dream. And in the dream, the nurse had the dream, and here's what happened. She was woken up by the dream, and she said that this is what took place. I want to find the exact quote. That she was supposed to be a light in a dark place and woke up knowing she was supposed to go to his room that day and pray for him. She walked into his room and she said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the savior? And this 93-year-old Jewish man said, yes, I do. And he came to Christ. Let's cheer for that. Cheer for that. A 93-year-old Jewish man comes to Christ through the prayers of people in our church and many other, through his daughter coming to Christ, through a nurse that has a dream that she's supposed to be light in a dark world. And she goes and she shares Christ with him and he comes to know Yeshua, the Messiah, and becomes a Christian. And two weeks later, he went into a coma and never came out and died. And my friend stepped into heaven.
before the throne of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Wow, I love hearing these testimonies so much that I, I put on your list, you got a little QR code of a website that just gives testimonies of Jewish people coming to Christ. Amazing, amazing testimonies there. Watch some of those today. It'll encourage your heart. God is at work. God is at work. Now we're gonna wrap up. I've got longer than I usually do, but this is a meaty one. I wanted to get it all in one shot there. God is here through Jesus and you come and trust Christ as your savior. You've heard the message. If you've got a hard heart, you pray for a soft heart and you respond to Jesus. He loves the Jewish people. He loves the Gentile people. And he's made a way for all of us to come to know him. And that's through Jesus Christ, his son. Father, we come in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. You are so good. You are better than we imagined. You save in our very church, Lord. Assyrians, Jewish folks, Gentiles, and I'm grateful, God. Yes, Lord, to you. Paul asked some good questions. And I ask a good question right now. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? The God of the Jew and the Gentile, the gracious, loving God who provides a way through Jesus. If you have, let me ask you this. Is your life about trying to be the shuffleboard champion of the Titanic or about living for the glory of God? Thank you, Jesus. Every campus will have people that are ready to receive you, to talk to you about this relationship with Jesus, to join the church, to ask some good questions to. You respond, you can pray even right in your seat. Just say, Lord, I, I want you to be my savior. I want you to forgive my sins. I want you to soften my hardened heart. You're gonna get the heart for God that you wanna get. I'm encouraging you to get a soft one. We love you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Houston's First Baptist Church. We invite you to worship with us at one of our four locations, at The Loop, Cypress, Downtown, or Siena. Follow us on social media or visit us online at houstonsfirst.org.